Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We're going to look for the next several weeks through a story in Genesis. Uh, We're going to start in Genesis 12 and spend a couple weeks in Genesis 12, and it's the story of Abraham. And the reason that we're doing that is because in many ways, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, is the thesis statement for God's plan. If you want to know what does it mean to be a Christian, if you want to know what is Christianity about, wherever you're coming from, um, what is God up to, really what we're doing this week and next week is examining the thesis statement of Scripture. Um, That in this place, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God calls Abraham and his plan of redemption is set into motion, and we kind of get a big picture overview of this thing called Christianity, and we're going to look at it together and uh, examine these verses over the next couple of weeks. So I'm going to read just a handful of verses, um, and uh, again, these are, I would say this is, and a lot of people would say this, a lot of theologians would say this is the thesis statement uh, for God's plan of redemption, and that the rest of the Bible is really explaining how God is filling out this plan and what He's doing with it. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And I'll make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Abram went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I pray as we consider these words, as we consider this person... Abram, that you began to do a great thing with, I pray that your Holy Spirit would tend to our hearts, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, uh, that we would forget any foolish things I say, and that where your truth comes out, uh, it would begin to change us. We need our Holy Spirit to work on us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, If you've been to commencement ceremonies, you'll notice after a while there's like a repetition of themes in commencement ceremonies. Speakers are always kind of choosing from one, one from kind of a handful of themes. There's the like, you can achieve anything kind of thing. Um, there's the kind of follow your heart kind of theme. There's the change the world theme. Um, but one of the most common themes is this. It's uh, you get to the end of your education, especially at a place like Stanford, and there's this commencement speech theme of you've been given something great, so now go do something great for others. And it's really interesting because um, I've seen students and I've seen alumni here actually judge each other's life choices according to that theme. Maybe you've already felt it already when you're considering different vocations and what you want to do with your life. Maybe you felt the judgment or the prospect of judgment of people saying, you went to Stanford and you're going to do that. Like somehow you're wasting this great thing that you have. And uh, those judgments sometimes can be really harsh and they can be simplistic. Uh, but at the same time, there's something right there. In that instinct, right? There's something in us that says when you've been given something great, 
you have a responsibility to kind of share it, to use it, to serve the world with it. And here's my point is, if that's true of a Stanford education, how much more true is it with the love of God? Christians and skeptics alike, wherever you find yourself on the spectrum of things, you need to know that in these words to Abraham, God's thesis statement of what He plans to do in the world, He's saying, Abraham, I mean, this is it. I am blessing you so that through you, you will bless the families of the world. And that, that's really the lens, the plan through which all the Scripture is meant to be read. If you're wondering, what is God doing? What's His big story? Anytime you come back and, so, say, and remember, oh yeah, He said His overall plan is to bless His people so that they bless the world. And so here's what this means. This is what it means for, for some of us. Christianity is not what it sometimes gets caricatured to be, which is to be a Christian means you like pray this weird transactional prayer uh, where you ask Jesus to give you this kind of get out of hell free card, whatever that means. And you, what you do is you're like, all right, I prayed the prayer, and now the agreement is I'm supposed to be more moral than I used to be, and I just kind of keep that card in my wallet until one day he's going to ask for it. And a lot of times I think that's how we view Christianity. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not His plan. That's not helpful. His plan is to make all things new. His plan is actually best summarized in the third verse of Joy to the World. He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. So wherever that there's something broken, where do His blessings go? Anywhere there's anything broken. That's his plan. That's his goal. God is saying, beginning with you, Abraham, I'll bless you. And verse 3 is the big purpose statement. Why is he doing everything here? So that through you, the nations will be blessed. And the rest of the Bible is explaining what that means. I want to talk about, kind of challenges to have a bigger view of what God's doing and then do a couple of points of application. And the first thing is this. What that means for a lot of us wherever you are, is you need to understand the scope of God's mission is probably bigger than you thought. Because His mission, His purpose, His plan, is not just spiritual. It's spiritual and it's physical. God intends to mend things internally in us. A lot of times we think that's all He's doing, right? The main thing He does, He comes along and He speaks this word of forgiveness and understand Jesus forgiving me on the cross, and that heals some things inside of me. That's right. That's good. That's only a part of the story. He intends to mend things spiritually and internally, but also externally, inside of you and outside of you. His mission is relational. It's between you and Him, and it's vocational. It's also about what you do in the world. This is a, have you ever felt that disconnect, right? That like your spiritual life is this thing that you kind of live out inside of your own head. Every now and then you talk with some other people about it. But it's mainly about kind of hoping that God kind of rightly kind of brings some psychological uh, healing inside of your head, that He deals with some shame and some guilt that you have, and you have this sense that there's someone that loves you, and it all takes place in here and in here. But then you're like, all right, if that's Christianity, then you have this thing called life that you live outside all day. And, and where's the connection? 
And maybe we've gotten comfortable with that disconnect. But this is the thing about the life of Jesus. His plan of redemption doesn't end at the cross. The cross is the place where, he, where, where God says, here's how much I love you, that I will forgive you of anything, no matter how much it costs me. Forgiveness is about cost, right? But the story doesn't end at the cross. The story actually is about beginning again in the empty tomb. Jesus rose again from the dead, and in his resurrection, there's a huge emphasis on the physicality of it in the New Testament, that people saw him, that people touched his body, that he's saying, it's not just that I made you right with God relationally, and there's some internal psychological alleviating of guilt, but it's that the brokenness is not just between us and God relationally and internally, but also in the physical world, and I'm making all things new, and Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. He's called the sign and the seal of the promise of the resurrection of the new heavens and the new earth. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. The curse is not just in here. The curse is out here. There is a massive cultural conversation going on in this country right now about how big the curse is out here in the world. His blessings are meant to go there as well. What's happening in this text is God is doing, he's doing, he's, he's, that's his thesis statement in this text. He begins first by establishing a relationship with Abraham. God is healing the rift between himself and people. He says, Abraham, here's how I'm going to start. I'm going to bless you. I'll make your name great. I'll make you a great nation. And he says this, but it's not just that. It's, just not, it's not just that, hey, now things are right between us. I'm happy with you. Maybe you're happy with me. There's a physicality to what he's saying here. He says, and also I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. see, the blessing, the promised blessing, it takes place in here, right? Inside and in his relationship between him and God. But it also takes place out here. It's about restoring a place, making things new again. In other words, he's not just mending our relationship with him, performing only spiritually or relationally or an internal act of redemption or salvation. His plan is to mend our relationship with the physical world, with this place with our bodies, with one another, with our relationship with work, with our relationship with food, with the economy, with art, with society, with politics, with cities, with wealth and health, with justice, with power and equity. All of those things have been touched by the curse. They're broken. Christian or not, we all know they're broken. His plan is not just to make you feel better inside your mind about things between you and Him. His plan is to take His blessings as far as the curse is found. In Genesis 3, this is the story of the fall. This is the, the Genesis account of how things got broken. And after, when, when things were broken, God says, here are the consequences of things broken. He's saying, things are now broken between you and me. God says that to Adam. But then he also says, and now things in the world are broken. Your work is frustrated. Your body is broken. And what's happening in these statements is God is saying, I'm mending your relationship with me, and then I'm going to bless the world through you. You are now going to be participants in taking that blessing everywhere. This is why when John the Baptist hears that Jesus in the first century, this Jewish guy, this 30-year-old Jewish guy, is walking around and doing these amazing things, John the Baptist, who's another Christian minister at that time, sends his messengers to Jesus and says, Hey, are you the one, are you the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises that we were waiting for? The Abrahamic promises that are 
over and over and over again, re-articulated all throughout the Old Testament. And this is, but this is how Jesus responds. He says, tell John this, that the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. What are those? Those are all physical things. And then he closes with, and tell him that the gospel is preached. That's a spiritual thing. But the reality is, the whole point is that they're all interrelated. Jesus is mending our bodies and our souls. He forgave sin and he fed the hungry. He died to make us right with God, but he rose again in the promise of the resurrection. He died to make us right with God, to restore the life-giving relationship we were made to have with the God who loves us and made us. Because that's the relational and the internal and the psychological and the spiritual mending we need. That is the thing that conquers the sin. Maybe you don't like that word, but we all have shame. We have guilt, the despair, the self-loathing, the anger, and the pride, and the envy, and the fear. All that stuff that we're wrestling with daily. Those are the result from the fact that we no longer can be sure that anyone loves us. And all of those things began to be, began, began to be healed when we began to understand, oh, we're loved by God. See, we think the solution to the broken inner life, to all of those things, is to become more beautiful and more popular, more successful, more influential, more powerful. That never silences the inner turmoil. It never heals anyone inside. We actually try to use our external life in order to heal our internal life, and it never works. God's blessing is that He mends His loving relationship with you. He loves you despite your shame and guilt. He loves us despite our family, despite our secrets, despite our failures, despite our accomplishments. He took our shame and He took our inadequacy and He took our failure to the cross. It no longer forms your identity. It no longer determines whether or not you're worthy to be loved. Believing the gospel... Is how God mends you spiritually, internally, relationally. He died to make us right with God. But also, He rose again. Uh, the most influential Christian theologian on the earth today, right now, almost uh, you know, inarguably, is a guy named N.T. Wright um, in England. And he actually came here and did a, a lecture with... Uh, kind of a, a dialogue with one of the philosophy professors here. This is about four years ago now. And the philosophy professor, he said, what is the one incontrovertible fact that if that was reversed, you would walk away from your Christian profession of faith? And he didn't hesitate. He said, oh, if the resurrection didn't happen, it's all worthless. The mission is spiritual and physical. It's relational and vocational. It seeks the, power, the healing of our inner life and our outer life. And here, here's my point, and here's this point. That's the blessing God brings, but here's what we're going to spend the rest of the time that we're doing. That is the blessing we are called to be. So what does that mean? A couple of points of application. First thing is this. If you're a Christian, you need to think a different way about what it means to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you need to make sure you're getting on the thing rightly considered. You're no longer to think of yourself as a consumer of God's blessing. That like, God's got a bunch of good stuff and maybe you can get as much of it as you can for yourself. You're a steward of His blessing. 
This is actually why the church is called the body of Christ in the New Testament. It's, because you're con- it's not just because we're connected to Jesus in a life-giving way, but because the church is called to act out, to be the hands and feet of His love into the world. To steward the goodness of God to the world around us. God's goodness, His grace, His provision, His love, they don't end in you. You're not called to be a dam or a reservoir or a cul-de-sac. You're a river. Living water is a constant image of God's love in the Bible. Jesus offers in John 4 to the woman, living water. In John 7, 38, He says, If you come to me and drink, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. To be in Jesus means that you begin to love the world the way Jesus has loved you. Not a consumer. It's not about getting as much blessing from God as you can. It's about sharing as much blessing from God as you can. One is distinctly not Christian and doesn't understand his love. One is being transformed by his love. Here's what this means. All the good things, and I mean that really, all the good things in your life. And hear what the good things are when I mean all. The good things are the next hour. It's your time. It's your energy. It's your resources. It's your money. It's your social life. It's your relationships. It's your aspirations. It's your future. It means all the good things are not that you have. They're not to be utilized to maximize your own safety, status, success, and prosperity. But rather, you steward those things to mend the world. And here's the thing. We're afraid. We actually think, like, I want to use those things to make me happy, and then if I have some time left over, I'll try to use some to kind of be Jesus-y-ish to people. This is the irony. It never makes you happy, and this is inauthentic Christianity. That the reality is, that we talk with my girl, I have four little girls that are amazing. I hope you all get to meet them if you haven't met them. We talk to them all the time. Our house is the most frustrating and violent and conflict-filled when all six of us, myself and my wife included, are all focused on getting what we want. Our house is the most peaceful, rich, and joyful. My children think if I get the iPhone I want, like resurrection life will happen and I will be full forever. Right? If I get the things I want. Here's the reality. You can come watch and observe this, and you've probably experienced it too. When, my ch- when little children come into our house, this is what happens. Is all of a sudden, my kids stop thinking about what they want, and they start to love. And they are the most happy when they have forgotten about their own prosperity, and their own goals, and their own status, and their own success, and they've started delighting in the idea of someone else being happy. So it's not, hey, I'm going to use some of my resources for my status, success, and prosperity, and then if I, I'm going to try to uh, delegate some for also being a Christian sometime. That'll never work. And my guess is one of the main reasons you don't like being a Christian is because that's what you're doing. Jesus actually wants to free you from self-obsession. Our time is not our own. Thinking, oh, I have time for all these things. I need to carve out some time for God. Our time is a gift given to us to be stewarded. Here's the one. Our sexuality is not our own. 
Our sexuality is not about self-seeking and self-satisfaction. It's actually about self-giving. It's about mirroring its bond within marriage, the joy and the ecstasy of self-giving, permanent, unstoppable joy of covenant love. Sex is about ministering to someone what the joy of covenant love is. That's why it's bound up and being permanently stuck with them. Relationships. Friends and enemies are not to be used and or rejected, evaluated whether or not they can serve you. They are there to be forgiven, to be served, to be built up. All of us walk into our dorm room at the beginning of freshman move-in and ask, will this stranger enhance my life or destroy my life? When you get in on the mission of God, your first question is, I wonder what loving them the way God has loved me. I wonder what that would look like. When you get grace, you realize, I wonder what it would look like even if I don't like them. It's true for your family. It's true for your friends. It's true for your coworkers. It's true for your aspirations. You don't ask, will this fulfill me? You ask, can this help make the world back the way God wants it to be? You know what? You can write insurance policy with that. You can do consulting with that. doesn't mean you have to go be a missionary in the third world. It would be great if you did. You can do landscaping with that. Look, look at the beginning of the call. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house. And one pastor pointed out, God calls Abram away from all of his personal sources of identity and security. Leave your land main source of economic security and identity. Your people, main source of social identity and security. Your father's house, personal and emotional identity and stability. Why is he doing that? What's he doing there? It's because you cannot be in mission for personal prosperity and status and security and at the same time be in God's mission to bless the world. He is giving Abram and he is giving you something bigger than yourself to live for. And there's only freedom and joy when you find that. Here, here's another image. God made you to be a wealth manager. A wealth manager is someone who, by virtue of their relationship with someone far wealthier than them, they're given great wealth to put into use on the world on behalf of that individual. You're not a dam, you're a river. Living water isn't stagnant, it doesn't sit in one place, it flows. You're not a consumer, you're a steward. That's the first application. Second, it means that we are concerned with the physical and the spiritual, like our God is concerned with the physical and the spiritual. And when you begin to recapture that vision and that mission, it actually reintegrates the connection between the spiritual and the physical, between your inner life and your external life, between your relationships and your vocation. Leslie Newbegin is an Anglican missionary um, to India for years and years, all throughout the 20th century. And he made an observation in a, at one point that at some point in modernity, two things got separated. Uh, social justice, making the world right, and this idea of evangelism, reconnecting people to God, got separated. So right now, you have physical mission taking place and spiritual mission taking place, but in separate, they're separate from each other. And at times, the church has rightly been criticized, and it's even being criticized today, for not being involved in social justice, in making the world right. But social justice is also failing us as well. Social justice apart from knowing Jesus. 
we act and, and often falsely think that if we raise everyone's educational, physical, and financial quality of life, then everything will be okay. Then why are wealthy, educated people more depressed and suicidal and getting divorced and abused and abusive, even though they have it all physically? Because you can have everything, but if you don't know you're loved, you feel like you have nothing. God's plan has always been for both for the physical and the spiritual. What that really means is that making things right in the world is actually no less spiritual than inviting people into understanding and knowing that Jesus loves them. And one without the other is not what God had in mind. It means we seek the internal and the external well-being of our neighbor. Uh, one sociologist at Baylor, a guy named Rodney Stark, wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, and he asked the question, how did this movement in the first couple of centuries go from 12 disciples to around 20 million followers within 300 years? This is without cars, this is without internet, this is when word travels slow. And one of his, his first answer to that question is this. He, he lists several answers, but where he goes first in his book and, and here's, he also asks, why, is it, does it, why does it cross every ethnic, social, economic, and geographic barrier in those first three centuries? Something that religions often have a hard time doing, crossing those barriers. And his first chief reason was this, that when plagues broke out in urban environments, which is a constant problem in the pre-modern world, everyone fled, and the Christians always stayed behind. The church stayed behind. You know what the second reason he talked about? They, they tended to the physical needs of the sick at their own expense. The next reason he talks about is because the most marginalized group in the first three centuries for much of the ancient world is women. And Christianity served and granted the dignity to marginalized groups and especially women. The church was the first place where women were dignified as equal with men. The church took up the call to gospel proclamation to make known the love of Jesus, but also to social justice, to tending to people's need. And they, they couldn't even understand the prospect of separating the two. Paul says in his letter to Corinth, he says, faith, hope, and love are really important, but do you know the most important thing is love? And he says, even if you have the greatest faith in the world, but have not love, you're nothing. Third point of application. So the first one is you're not a consumer, you're a steward. The second one is uh, it means God's people are concerned with the physical and the spiritual. But here's the third one. This one is sweet, and it's also sweet because I get to use an illustration that gets, lets me talk about me. It reinvigorates your delight in Jesus. If you're bored as a Christian, it reinvigorates your delight in Jesus. And here's what I mean. Here's the illustration. Half of you already know this. Over Thanksgiving... A friend of mine flew our entire family to Zurich, Switzerland to visit with his family, which is amazing, but it gets better. <laughs> While we were there, he wakes me up at 5 o'clock Friday morning, and we get on a train and ride to Stuttgart, Germany, and he purchases a Ferrari off the dealership floor. Like, 
It's on the dealership floor, and they literally open the, he signs the papers, they open the doors, and we drive a brand new Ferrari 458 off of the dealership floor onto the Autobahn. I had never touched a Ferrari, I'd never sat in a Ferrari, <laughs> let alone driven a Ferrari. The very first time I've ever come in physical contact with a Ferrari, I took it up to 165 miles an hour on the Autobahn. <laughs> I just wanted to tell you all that, it has nothing to do with the sermon, but... <laughs> no, it actually does. You don't buy a Ferrari to park it in the garage. When you come to know God's love, you don't park it in the garage. It's made to get out on the Autobahn and punch it. <laughs> you only experience the... Ex- here, but here's my point. You only experience the thrill and the exhilaration and the growl of a Ferrari when you take it on the Autobahn and punch it. You never experience that as long as you keep it in the garage. One of the reasons you're actually maybe frustrated in your walk with Jesus is because you've parked it in the garage like... There's no spiritual bodybuilding. You know what bodybuilding is? It's working out just to look cool to yourself. If you bodybuild, that's fine. My point is not about bodybuilding. My point is, there's no such thing as spiritual bodybuilding. In other words, hiding in your dorm room, trying to read your Bible some, and be more moral so that you can feel a little bit more acceptable about the religious person you're trying to get. It's not Christian. If you have great faith, Paul's like, but you don't have love, it's nothing. Until you take that Christian profession of faith and that belief, I think Jesus loves me and I think He's sealed me for the resurrection. And you take it out into the lives and the world around you and it's messy and it's hard, y'all. Driving a Ferrari on the Autobahn at 165 is terrifying. This is going to be terrifying too. It's also awesome. It, here, here's a, it will reinvigorate your relationship with Jesus. My dad is one of the most generous people I know. And uh, he's only shared with me a small portion of the ways he's generous. He doesn't share very much. Uh, But I know that his generosity far exceeds what he's ever allowed me to know about. And here's the reason I know. He doesn't boast about his generosity. Very few people know about what he does. But on several occasions in my life, I've been in places and people have said, Hey, are you John Wood's son? People I've never met before. And they said, You have no idea how much he helped my family out when we needed it. When I went home this past Christmas, during some of my time with my dad, I kind of brought to dad some things, some ways Elizabeth and I were thinking about giving and sharing some of the things that we have. And it's not much, but my point is this. Because of who my dad was, what I wanted to do is come to him and say, hey, I'm trying to be generous the way you've been. My point is this. I wasn't trying to earn his love or his approval. I've had that. It's been a good father. I was enjoying his joy when he saw me try to be like him. I wanted to bring him joy and showing him that I'm trying to be like him. I'm not even good at it. I can't give the way he gives. I don't have the resources for it. I don't, my heart's not the way his heart is. It's amazing. But the proud gaze he gave me is the gaze every son wants. It's life-giving. When you go and take hold of God's call and mission, it reinvigorates your life in him. You get to go, hey, Jesus, look how I'm trying to be for this person the way you've been for me. He loves that. You will love it.
One reason I think our spiritual experience is often thin is because we've been asking God to bless our own little plans for our own little mission instead of asking God, what are his plans for using you to bless your neighbor? Try that. Get the Ferrari out on the Autobahn. It will be scary. and It will feel like you're going to lose your life. And it will be awesome. You'll experience the exhilaration and the power that maybe you feel like is lacking. You'll probably pray for the first time. Because you'll be like, oh my gosh, this is terrifying. This is scary. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to love my roommate. I'm going to try. I don't know how to forgive this person I hate. I'm going to try. I don't know how to tell someone about the gospel. I'll try. You'll pray more. You'll interact with brothers and sisters in faith. You'll be like, I don't know what to do. They'll actually draw you towards them. It'll reinvigorate your life, your spiritual life. Here's my last point. This will be shorter. Uh, Just try it. When my older brother was thinking about getting married, he had all these doubts. And uh, he sat down in a conversation with my dad. They talk about this conversation all the time. He's been married for 16, 17 years now. And uh, he expressed all his doubts, and here's what my dad said to him. He said, tell you what, just try it. (laughs) You have a lot of doubts. You have a lot of fears. I have a lot of doubts. I have a lot of fears. I'm a professional Christian minister. I'm supposed to tell people about Jesus, right? That's what I'm doing right now. I'm scared to death more often than you know. Feel ill-prepared more often than you know. We have this perfectionism fear, right? Like, I don't want to do anything if I'm not going to be good at it. Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. Go try and do it poorly. Just do it poorly. Drive. When I drove the Ferrari, I really like bringing that up. John was very patient. This is his third Ferrari. Uh, he's driven. He rents racetracks, drives them on that. He's an incredible driver. When I drove it, you know what I did? I drove it poorly. I didn't know when to shift. He was really patient. He was really encouraging. Go try to love people even if you do it poorly. Bless people with the love that Jesus has shown you. If you never tried it, just go do it poorly. It's worth trying to do poorly. It's not. The interesting thing is, it's actually, the Bible says it's specifically not for professional Christians, for pastors. In Ephesians 4, when Paul talks to the church, he says, Oh, by the way, God gave the church pastors in order to equip y'all for ministry. The call of pastors in Ephesians 4 is to actually to equip everyone else in order to do ministry. Just try it. Help us form. It'll go poorly. It's fine. One of the things we want to be, this group to be, and kind of all of its manifestations, is to be a group on campus. It's not just you. The mission is a communal act. We're going to talk about that more next week. But what does it look like for us to be a group that seeks the well-being of this place, of this campus? What does it look like to be connected to each other in that? Everybody's different. Everybody has different gifts. That's part of God's mission. That's something he talks about. He talk, spend all night talking about. Everybody can't do all the things. Right? Uh, I'll close with this. Um, and over spring break, we're going to go up to Yakima and uh, partner with a ministry called Sacred Road Ministries that's been serving the Yakima people on the reservation there for about 15 years now. And Chris Granberry is the guy who started the ministry there. He's from Alabama, and here's a miracle. He's even an Auburn fan, and he's changing the world for Jesus. So God can work with anybody. (laughs) That'll be on the podcast. Um, If you don't know about the reservation, it's incredible poverty. Uh, 
It's an incredible lack of education. Almost no one goes to college. There's gang violence. It's an incredibly high suicide rate. Um, the economic opportunity is completely vanishing. It's third world country conditions right in the middle of the United States. Y'all have heard me say this before, but this kind of stat captures it all. Life expectancy on the Yakima Reservation in central Washington, the United States, is 39. It's 36 for men. It's third world country right here. Here's what Chris did when he got there 15 years ago. He didn't know what to do, but he saw that people didn't have roofs on their houses. So he just started putting roofs in their houses. He didn't know what to do, but he saw that their houses were trash, so he just started cleaning them. And he did that for years. But then he also knew that that wasn't enough, so he started telling them about Jesus. And what happened, a couple, what we do on the trip is specifically that. We spend the morning mending the physical brokenness of the place, and we spend the afternoon loving the children who've been abandoned by their parents in that place and telling them about Jesus. You get to participate in the physical... The reason I go every year, it's really hard for me to go because I have a family of four girls, and it means that I start the spring quarter completely exhausted. I'm a terrible salesman. If you go, you'll start the spring quarter horribly exhausted. The reason I go every year is because I've never seen a clearer, more beautiful expression of what it means to bless the world the way God has blessed us than what Sacred Road does at that reservation. They fix the physical brokenness there, and they love people with Jesus' love and tell them about His love there. And it's changing the place. And here's what's cool. Three years ago, um, the council came together and had a naming ceremony for Chris. So Chris is this white guy from Alabama. And they gave him a Native American name and had a naming ceremony. And the name they gave him was this, Mool which doesn't sound cool at first, doesn't sound intimidating, doesn't sound like Dances with Wolves or something like that. But here's why they gave him the name Mool That is the sound a bubbling brook makes. And in the ceremony, they said, we are giving you the name Mool because this was a desert land and we were dying. And you're bringing life. And it's like there's water here for the first time. That's what God's people are called into. Let's pray.